0: Our gospel lesson is from the beginning of the book of Mark. Pay careful attention, because this is the gospel of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and all those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting, and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, and for your word. We pray that as we study and that as we look, you would make us, by your Spirit, to be more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, today marks the first Sunday after Epiphany. It's the first Sunday in Epiphany season. And the word epiphany means a revelation or an insight, an understanding. Or in older usage, the word meant a, a revelation of the divine or of the supernatural. And in the same way that Advent looks forward to the coming of Christ and Christmas celebrates his birth, traditionally the churches marked some seasons, some Sundays after Christmas, as epiphany. Celebrating the revelation of Jesus as the divine divine Son of God, or his manifestation to the nations. Commonly, epiphany gospel texts are something like the visit of the wise men, or like our gospel reading today, Jesus' baptism. And our gospel lesson is an especially appropriate epiphany text, because right in the beginning of Mark's prologue to his gospel, He sort of reveals for us, he pulls back the curtain so that we can see the divine nature of Jesus and the divine nature of his mission. Mark, perhaps more than any of the other gospel writers, is concerned to reveal to us that Jesus is a king, the divine king of Israel for the sake of the nations. Royal languages and images are scattered all throughout the prologue that we just read, For example, Mark calls Jesus the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the anointed king, and the Son of God, which is a royal title. We'll talk more about that later. He records the summary of Jesus' preaching as the kingdom of God. But most of all, in contrast to the other three evangelists, in contrast to Matthew and Luke and John, Mark bookends his prologue by telling us explicitly explicitly that what he's writing is a gospel. Now, if you've grown up in church or you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that gospel, the Greek word evangelion, means something like good news or glad tidings. And sometimes we're so used to hearing that gospel means good news, or we summarize the gospel by saying It's how we have our relationship with God that we forget originally the word referred to the good news of a great military victory, or the birth or ascent of a king. Consider the words from an inscription about the birth of Augustus Caesar, which says, quote, The providence which has ordered the whole of our life sent him, Augustus, as it were, As a deliverer for us and for those who would come after us to make wars to cease and to create order everywhere, the birthday of the God, in that case, in this inscription, Augustus, was the beginning for the world, the gospel, or the glad tidings that have come to men through him. Sounds a lot like our Christmas text that we just read, celebrating the birth of Jesus, bringing peace and glad tidings everywhere. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the word in a similar way. In Isaiah chapter 52, 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, glad tidings, that is, the gospel, evangelion, who announces peace and brings good news, the gospel, of happiness, who announces deliverance and says to Zion, Your God is king. So Jew and Gentile, pagan and faithful, at this time when Mark is writing, used the word gospel to refer to the glad tidings brought by the ascent of a king. The pagans applied it to their Caesars and their gods, but the Jews were looking forward to the reign of God through his Christ, through his Messiah, the coming of his kingdom. And so while the gospel does result in changed lives and in believing the gospel we are put right with God the gospel is not a method for moral improvement and the gospel is not a description of how to have a personal relationship with God but rather it is an announcement of the person and work of his Christ Jesus so we consider Mark's prologue and Jesus' baptism in particular It reveals to us something of the nature of his kingdom and of this king. So let's look. Mark begins his gospel, as do most of the apostles and the other New Testament writers, by quoting the Old Testament and showing that the reign of Jesus is in fulfillment to the Old Testament prophecies. Now, for the last few weeks, Pastor Sexton has been showing us how to understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament prophecies. If you remember, he talked about very specific fulfillments, or um, also talked about typological or pattern fulfillments. And that was a a wonderful lesson and a good sermon. That's not the point we're going to go to in this text, but I do want to stop and look and see that Mark is doing something very interesting with the Old Testament quotations that he picks. He says in verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. What Mark is doing is combining. He's using the first verse of Malachi 3 and combining it with a prophecy from Isaiah 40. Um, But let me turn real quick to uh, Malachi 3 and read Malachi 3 for you. See if you catch the change that Mark is making. Here's Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, as the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old. Did you catch the difference? Malachi 3.1, he says that God will, prepare, will send a messenger to prepare the way before his face. And in Mark, he picks up that and applies it to Jesus saying, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face. And in Isaiah 40, chapter 3, the other Old Testament um, prophecy that Mark picks up, The messenger is sent before the way of the Lord. In doing this, Mark is making this subtle shift from before my face to before your face, before the face of Jesus, and he's claiming right at the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is God. He couldn't be making his message more clear. The gospel that he's writing is the coming of the king, but the king that is coming to Israel is Israel's God. So if Jesus is Israel's God and king coming, John then is the messenger, the refining fire, who sits to refine Israel like launderer's soap. It's interesting to see that the regions mentioned in Malachi 3-4 are the exact same ones that Mark tells us specifically that came out to John, Judah, and Jerusalem. In verse 5, he says, Then, All the land of Judea and all those from Jerusalem went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So John is fulfilling the messenger role of Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. As we look at this passage, though, one question we have to ask is why did John then go out to the wilderness other than to preach, other than to simply. Um, fulfill the prophecy, you know, if he maybe he had the book open in front of him and said, okay, I should go to the wilderness, but is there something important about John going out to preach in the wilderness? If he wanted to reach Jerusalem and Judea, wouldn't it have made more sense maybe for him to go to the temple and preach or perhaps in the city and erect himself a pulpit? Why is he out at the Jordan River on the very border of Israel? Well, the wilderness for Israel is the setting of spiritual desolation and temptation and failure. The book of Numbers um, is completely taken up with Israel's wanderings in this wilderness region before they come into the promised land, and it's a book of failure over and over again. He goes out to the wilderness because in his time and in his day, in a sense, Jerusalem has become the wilderness, by preaching that the kingdom of God is coming there, John is signaling that even though the Israelites are in the land, even though they're in Jerusalem and they have the temple, that they are covenantally, that they are spiritually in the wilderness. And they need to be brought back from exile. By even just by his setting, John is saying, you're in the wilderness, spiritually you are desolate, so admit it. Come out to the wilderness Repent, confess, be baptized, and then come back in with the reigning king and the Messiah that's coming, be renewed. By making the pilgrimage to the Jordan, those who truly believed John's message showed that they wanted to be the members of the future and purified Israel about which he preached. Undergoing John's baptism helped them anticipate that even when the coming Messiah came and Um, judged God's covenant people, that they would remain in that covenant even after God had cast others out. In order to be assured that they were included in this future Israel, they needed to come and repent and ask for personal forgiveness and pledge themselves to the reign of the Messiah now. And in this way, the baptisms we just celebrated, all of our baptisms, are just like John's. We ask those who can answer and we, or the parents of those infants that are baptized, just like we did this morning, if they recognize their sin and their need for Jesus. None of us, John's message tells us, should coast on uh, perceived safety in our, um, our church membership or being born in the right place or, or anything like that. We need to um, appropriate what is offered to us by faith. Mark records that John was clothed with camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. In saying this, John reminds us of the prophet Elijah. 1 Kings 1 records for us that he was a hairy man, Elijah was, with a leather belt around his waist. But John is like Elijah in other respects. He, too, confronts an evil king, Herod, just as Elijah confronted Ahab. Elijah also spent a lot of time outside of Israel proper, 1 Kings 7, 17, 3. And he was also fed by God in the wilderness, 1 Kings 19, 4 through 7, just as John was. So John is a new Elijah. John is the forerunner, the great prophet Elijah. But he also demonstrates the humility of another prophet, Moses. Moses was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Yet Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. Likewise, Jesus says that there was none born of woman greater than John. But what does John say about himself in verse 7? And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. He has the humility of the prophet Moses, and he has the lifestyle of the prophet Elijah as he prepares the way for the divine king of Israel. So I make these points not to talk about John the Baptist per se, which is not really what John would want us to be doing, but rather to point to Jesus. As John does, he points to Jesus as his successor and the one who is greater. So if John is a new Elijah, then Jesus is a new Elisha, possessing a double portion of the Spirit, or in this case, the Spirit without measure. And he comes baptizing in the Spirit. If John is like Moses, then Jesus is a new Joshua, conquering the promised land. Yet his battle will not be waged against flesh and blood, but against principality and power, against spiritual forces of wickedness. So that's why verses 12 and 13 tell us that Jesus was tempted by Satan and ministered to by angels. Mark, as I said before, especially in his prologue, pulls back the curtain to reveal Jesus' divine nature to us, the divine nature of his mission. Um, Jesus is not prosecuting holy war like Joshua did, simply conquering cities. Jesus is conquering Satan and sin and death. Well, What I really want to focus on today is Jesus' baptism. This is the traditional text for Epiphany, is Jesus' baptism. And I want to show us what Mark is teaching us about the nature of this king and this kingdom in his gospel. So let's look at Jesus' baptism. In verse 9, it begins It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As Jesus was baptized, The Holy Spirit, which in the Old Testament was symbolized uh, by the pouring of oil for kings. Kings were anointed for their ministry to rule by having oil poured on them, and it was supposed to represent the Holy Spirit coming on them in power to give them the ability to rule justly. In Jesus' baptism, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit himself. The Spirit descends on him personally, In the form of a dove. His was a true and complete anointing to rule. And he saw, it says, the heavens parting, or the heavens were torn, which is another way to render that Greek word. And the Father proclaims over Jesus, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now I said we would come back to that phrase. The words of the Father over Jesus at his baptism, You are my beloved Son. The first part is actually taken from Psalm 2, 7 and 8, which says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus is in the fulfillment of the Davidic and the divine king of Psalm 2. The second part is from Isaiah 42, which we read earlier as our Old Testament passage. It says, Behold, my servant whom I am uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, or in whom I am well pleased, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Jesus' anointing at his baptism, then, is a true gospel. Jesus is the divine Son of God, the king and the inheritor of all the nations. By speaking these words over Jesus at his baptism, God is showing us that he is coming in the person of Jesus Christ to be king over every nation on earth. Think about that we are sitting in the United States thousands of years after this event in a place far removed from Jerusalem, worshiping Jesus because he has inherited all the nations. He's inherited our nation and China and Africa and India, every nation belongs to Jesus Christ. All the other gospels of Caesar and pagan gods were false gospels, but in the proclamation made over Jesus at his baptism, God is saying that Jesus is the inheritor of all the nations. He is God. Come in the person of his Christ to rule and reign and bring justice. But as we read about this baptism, this anointing for kingship, one question that really ought to stick in our minds is why Jesus was baptized in the first place. We know the Spirit descend, descended on him and he was anointed to be a king, but John was preaching a baptism of repentance, it says, for the remission of sins. And Jesus has no sins to repent of. And this points to his great humility. Jesus, as the anointed king, will have a very different kind of rule, a very different way of conquering than the pagan gospels. And it showed even at the beginning of his reign as he's baptized in the Jordan. Jesus has no sins to repent of, and he is the coming king, and yet he's willing to go out to the wilderness and bear the spiritual desolation and identify with the plight of his people to undergo baptism And be willing to be treated as if he were a sinner. And this is now, of course, not the last time that he would be so treated. Look with me, if you will, at another scene many years later as Jesus hangs on a cross in Mark 15. Starting in verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard it, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion stood opposite him and saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Did you see all the striking similarities between Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion. In both, there's the mention of Elijah. There's the presence of the Spirit and his baptism as a dove and his crucifixion as his breath. There's the declaration of Jesus as the Son of God, but instead of the voice from heaven of the Father, it's out of the mouth of a Gentile centurion. If his baptism was his anointing for rule, then the cross is Jesus's conquering enthronement. In his baptism, baptism, Jesus was anointed for rule. In his crucifixion, he conquered, defeating Satan, sin, and death. He opened the way to the Father for us through the veil, through his own flesh. In both instances, we see the heavens opened and the opportunity to come to God the Father through him. In his humility, Jesus was identified with sinners like you and me to bear the wrath of God, for our sin and our spiritual desolation, all to, who look to him in faith are identified with him as his people, and Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose in victory. This is the glad tidings, the good news of the gospel, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God for all nations. see him and believe Jesus ultimately won his victory, ultimately conquered, ultimately ascended by allowing his enemies to destroy him, which is a way of conquering and the way of wisdom that up to this point had not been known. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In the prologue we read, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And if we read throughout the gospel, we would see Jesus casting out demons and plundering Satan. And here at his cross, we see him defeating Satan, and all spiritual darkness. But Jesus conquers by giving himself up. Jesus conquers by serving. It's entirely possible for the onlookers at Jesus' baptism and at his crucifixion that to them nothing miraculous or important was happening. In Mark's prologue, it says that the heavens were open to him, Matthew's likewise ambiguous. In some Gospels, it seems maybe as if John can see the Spirit descending, but it's entirely possible that the entire line of people to get baptized were going through, and Jesus came and was baptized, and only he saw what happened. And unless you were at the temple itself, you would not have seen the, the veil rip. These miraculous, these important events, this opening of heaven, to men on earth are real, is really only perceived with the eye of faith. These are just like the baptisms that we do regularly here at this church. It seems as if nothing miraculous or spectacular is happening, water is poured and words are said and prayers are offered, but in doing this, God is claiming and putting his name on people because of what Jesus did on the cross thousands of years ago, the way to heaven is opened. The Jews of Jesus' day and often his own disciples didn't even understand this method of ruling and this way of conquering. Look how he was treated by his own people as he was enthroned. Nailed above Jesus was his charge, which if they had the eyes to see the theological and um, historical irony, the king of the Jews, as Jesus ascends to the throne of his cross... It says, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocked among themselves with the scribes and said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. His own people... Often his own disciples did not understand the way that he would redeem others. He saved others he cannot save himself, but in that moment he was saving all who would look to him in faith. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to come in power and cleanse the land from wickedness and Gentiles and idolatry. And that is exactly what Jesus did. But the Jews that he came to just didn't realize that they were were the idolaters. the Christ was supposed to come and establish the justice of the Lord for the whole world, but they could not conceive of establishing justice by bearing wrath. They could not conceive of a king taking his throne on a cross. They could not conceive of conquering by serving. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, can we? Do we understand that the road to glory and the road to enthronement leads to the cross do we understand that the way to be exalted in god's eyes is through humility the way that we live our lives among each other as this church or in our families do we understand that the way to take authority is to serve and put others before ourselves I want to close by making applications for us from Jesus' baptism to ours, returning to the point that Jesus was baptized to identify with us and so that we would have union with him. And there's a few implications for what our baptisms mean. One is that it us, assures us that we are engrafted into his death and into his life, that we're a partaker of all of his blessings and all of his inheritance. Jesus' baptism ensures us that we too, are children of God. Galatians three, twenty six through twenty nine says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So baptisms are a regular thing here, um, and we praise the Lord for that. It's an incredible blessing. And each time one happens, you should remember your own baptism and let it be an encouragement to you and an encouragement to your faith. If you have faith in Christ and you're baptized, you have put on Christ. Speaking of baptism, John Calvin said that God himself, quote, speaks to us by means of the sign that is himself, he himself who washes and purifies us and effaces the remembrance of our faults, that it is he himself who makes us the partakers of his death, destroys the kingdom of Satan, subdues the power of our sin and makes us one with himself. These things I say we ought to feel as truly and certainly in our mind as we see the body washed, immersed, Surrounded with water. So in baptism, God holds out the promise of the forgiveness of sins and adoption into his kingdom. Receive it by faith and be secure. Also remember that in our union with Christ, his anointing for rule and glory took him down the path of humility. The call of Jesus' baptism and ours is a call to death, death to self. Jesus said that if anyone would come after him, he must take up his cross to follow him. Faith realizes, though, that when we take up our cross, when we serve others, when we put others before ourselves, when we deny ourselves, that we are actually taking up our throne. Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. As we serve one another in humility, we are truly walking the path to glory and resurrection. And finally, our epistle lesson, which we just read, teaches us that in our baptisms we are reminded to put to death the sin that remains in us. Romans 6 says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we see a baptism, we remember our baptism. We remember Jesus' baptism. Remember that the death Jesus died was for our sin, and so our sin has been killed in him. We are united to Christ in our baptism through faith. And so the sin that remains until we get to glory, we are to put to death just as Jesus did on the cross. We are continue to fight sin in our own lives and in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own con- congregation until we come to glory and to resurrection. This is the gospel, this is the glad tidings. The divine Son of God for all nations has come. His baptism, his death, and resurrection and ascension, he opened the way to the Father. He rules over all the nations of men. And ever since his first coming, the time has been fulfilled, and his kingdom is always at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son. Jesus Christ, to be our king, to bear our wrath, and to open the way to you through faith. We thank you for the gospel and his reign over all the earth. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.